Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Um, today, we're going to be talking about gastroesophageal reflux disease with Dr. Mbata, our surgical gastroenterologist from Steve Biko Academic Hospital. Welcome back, Dr. Mbata. What is gastroesophageal reflux disease? Gastroesophageal reflux disease is basically, as the name suggests, a reflux of gastric juices from the stomach into the esophagus. Typically, it can occur under asymptomatic but sometimes when the volume is increased and it's causing troublesome symptoms and causes damage to the esophageal mucosa, then it is regarded as pathological and we call it gastroesophageal reflux disease. And what is the pathophysiology of gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD as we call it for short? Well, maybe first is to mention that we have what we call a physiological reflux, um, which is a normal reflux that occurs in healthy individuals. It's asymptomatic, typically occurs immediately after eating postprandially during a wake up hours in an upright position. And these are this is usually very short lived and asymptomatic. And it's as a result of a transient opening of the lower esophageal sphincter. But when it comes to disease now, gastrointestinal reflux disease, it's a chronic disease because of a permanently defective uh, lower esophageal sphincter. And the lower esophageal sphincter, which is a high pressure zone in the distal esophagus at the level of the OG junction, will be regarded as um, defective um, if it has a mean resting pressure of less than 6 millimeters of mercury. If the overall length of the sphincter itself has decreased to less than 2 centimeters, the length of the sphincter within the abdomen um, is less than 1 centimeter. And what are the complications of GERD? The complications um, of GERD um, occur as a result of repetitive exposure of the oesophagus to, to injurious fluids. Uh, these fluids are typically your gastric juices, so your gastric acid uh, together with pepsin, but also um, biliary reflux, so biliary and pancreatic juices can reflux into the stomach, from the duodenum to stomach, and then from the stomach into, into the oesophagus. So those are the type of uh, juices that causes injury to the oesophagus to cause complications of GERD because of the injury to the mucosa. These complications include uh, your esophagitis. Patients can develop uh, esophageal strictures and then they can develop what we call Barrett's esophagus. And those patients who have repeated aspirations are also prone to develop uh, progressive pulmonary fibrosis. Can you tell us a little bit more about esophagitis? So esophagitis is basically inflammation of the lining of the esophagus, of the mucosa of the esophagus. Esophagitis is seen or um, visualized endoscopically when we, um, and it can be further graded. There's a, a few graded systems that are available, but the one that is most commonly used currently and most widely accepted is the classification called the Los Angeles classification, which basically grades the severity of the esophagitis. Um, grade one will be regarded as a one or more Mucosal, mucosal breaks which are less than five centimeters in length. Great B with mucosal breaks which are long, like more than five millim more than five millimeters in length, but they are not continuous between the tops of the adjacent mucosal floors. These breaks tend to occur as linear erosions or linear uh, breaks in the mucosa. Uh, grade C um, is when at least one of the mucosal breaks that is con are continuous at the top of the adjacent mucosa. So that if you have two uh, linear breaks and there's communication or continuous over a mucosal break, then you regard that as grade C. And then grade D will be mucosal breaks that involve at least three fourths 
uh, of this circumference uh, of the esophagus. And what would be a result of severe esophagitis? With severe esophagitis, which is persistent and non-checked, patients will eventually develop stricture. Uh, we can have two types. We can have an early stricture, which is usually a fibrotic mucosal ring, which is called a shasted ring, where just the mucosa is, um, is strictured, cause for the stricture. Or you can have uh, intramural fibrosis that can extend from the submucosa all the way to the muscles of the esophagus, causing significant luminal narrowing or stricturing of the esophagus. Other than the stricture, the patients uh, will, will eventually develop Barrett's esophagus, which represents the end stage of gastroesophageal reflux disease. In Barrett's esophagus, the, the squamous epithelium of the tubular esophagus gets replaced with columnar epithelium, but that columnar epithelium then undergoes intestinal metaplasia, and this is usually confirmed at endoscopy and biopsy. And the Barrett itself is a serious um, complication of GAD because it may, the Barrett itself may also complicate an, into an adenocarcinoma or it may develop ulcerations and structuring, especially at the squamocolumnar junction. What would be some respiratory complications of reflux disease? Reflux disease has a, has a number of respiratory com, um, complications. It will be your chronic laryngitis, it will be your adult onset asthma, or patients who develop idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. The, there's some theories um, that have been suggested that had lead to respiratory complications, which will be your reflux theory, where we think that the acid that is refluxing from the stomach goes into your respiratory system and causes damage directly into the mucosa, um, leading to this laryngitis, uh, bronchospasms and bronchofibrosis. Or we can have what they call the reflex theory, where it is thought that because and visceral um, afferent fibers of the of, of the esophagus and the trachea are shed, so it's a reflex because of the stimulation by the afferent fibers. So what would be some of the common symptoms that patients would complain of that may give you an idea that they have gastroesophageal reflux disease when they present to you in the clinic? Symptoms that are indicative of gastroesophageal reflux are quite common in the, in the general population. The classical presentation or the classical symptoms would be your heartburn or your regurgitation. Uh, there may be other symptoms um, like a water brush, which is a sensation of frothing in the mouth with um, acid uh, fluid or global sensation where there's a feeling of a persistent bolus that is within the osocus even after swallowing. Or patients may also present with a dysphagia, especially when in, in the later part uh, of the disease. Are there any atypical symptoms associated with reflux disease? Yes, there are some atypical symptoms. They predominantly the your respiratory symptoms. Um, that will include your cough, the hoarseness of voice, bronchospasms or asthma, and your recurrent aspirations. Another common uh, symptom which may be regarded as typical is chest pain. These respiratory symptoms and the atypical symptoms may be related to other diseases, so they need to be thoroughly uh, evaluated. And once you've seen a patient in clinic that has either the typical or the atypical symptoms, how would you proceed to investigate them? So maybe the patients who present with classical symptoms can usually be started on medical treatment before any further evaluation, and then they've evaluated with regard to the response. Um, for those who have atypical symptoms or persistent symptoms, the evaluation that you conduct is usually aimed at either confirming the diagnosis of the gastrointestinal reflux disease, at excluding other diagnoses if available, and at evaluation of the complications uh, as a result of GET. The type of investigations 
that we do can be broadly classified into maybe three groups. The first group will be the test to see if there is any acid exposure um, to the oesophagus. That will be usually a 24 ambulatory pH monitoring. Test the, uh, the acidity of the reflux. And then we have tests that assess the structural or anatomical abnormalities that may have developed. Uh, those will, that will be your endoscopy, which is very good at assessing for gut complications. So you'll see your strictures and things. And, but it also allows us to perform any biopsies, especially for things like paratosophagus. Then another test for structural abnormalities will be your param swallow, which is good at assessing also esophageal anatomy. It will show you any areas of narrowing in the esophagus. It will show you any strictures, and it's also very good at assessing hiatal uh, anatomy or anatomy of the hiatal canal, in particular the large hiatal hernias. The other tests that we do are basically to detect the functional abnormalities of the esophagus. That will be your high-resolution manometry, which basically assesses the motor function of the esophagus and the sphincter to exclude any dysmotility disorders of the esophagus. And also a newer test is what we call esophageal impedance testing, which basically tests the electrical impedance of luminal contents and will evaluate the GI function. And the test is very good in assessing what they call non-acid gastroesophageal reflux. So it confirms the presence of reflux of liquids or gas or solids within the lumen of the esophagus. And what is your approach to the management of these patients? We we like to offer a step a stepwise approach in the management of um, these patients. Uh, counsel the patient on uh, lifestyle and diet modification, which include uh, elevating the head of the bed when they're sleeping at night, uh, to avoid tight feeding clothing, to eat small frequent meals, um, avoid eating immediately prior to bedtime, and also tell them to avoid alcohol, coffee, chocolate, peppermint, because these have been shown to to reduce the resting lower social sphincter pressure. After lifestyle modification, then we can move on to medical therapy. Um, in patients who present with mild symptoms and uncomplicated get usually we can start them with a course of 12 weeks of a simple antacids um, before we do any diagnostic testing and see how they respond to that initiation. But the patients who have persistent symptoms and patients who have signs that are suggestive complications of GERD, then move on to give them uh, acid suppression, which is typically offered with uh, lifelong uh, PPIs. For those who fail uh, medical, thera uh, medical therapy, then we will consider them for um, surgical intervention. For those patients who have persistent symptoms, then we will offer them uh, acid suppression. We use uh, proton pump inhibitors, or the so-called PPI in short. These unfortunately tend to be um, a lifelong treatment because it's been shown that if you stop the treatment, that these patients who have persistent so will develop a recurrence of symptoms within a period of about six months. So the treatment typically ends up being a lifelong treatment. And when do you offer them surgery? Surgical therapy um, is um, offered to those patients basically who have failed medical therapy. So there's a, there's a, there are a few groups. One, the failed medical therapy. So those are the patients who develop complications or patients who have persistent symptoms despite adequate therapy with the acid suppression and PPIs. So those will be considered as patients who have failed medical therapy and will be good kind of candidates for surgical intervention. Younger patients, 
who are unwilling to take lifelong medication can be considered also for surgical intervention. Patients with structural problems or structural defective lower cell sphincters, patients with hiatal hernias, especially large hiatal hernias, are also considered for surgical intervention. And also in patients who develop complications despite adequate therapy, like patients who have severe esophagitis, patients who develop strictures, patients who have paratosophagus, will also are also considered for surgical therapy. And for the patient with strictures, it's important that uh, we remember that we have to sort out the stricture first. So those patients are usually dilated with a bougie up to a bougie of more than 50 French and make sure that any dysphagia that was pre-existing is completely resolved before we offer them any surgical intervention. And for patients with paratosophagus, as we've mentioned before, that Barrett has, has, has a high risk of developing adenocarcinoma. So those patients with, uh, will have to be uh, evaluated thoroughly to exclude any dysplasia or adenocarcinoma. If there is dysplasia of the Barrett's, uh, high, especially high-grade dysplasia, if there is adenocarcinoma, those should be treated before any anti-reflux surgery is offered. What are the types of surgery that are commonly done for reflux disease patients? The type of surgery that we commonly perform is what we call the fundoplication, uh, anti-reflux procedure. A laparoscopic Nissan fundoplication is the most common one, which is a 360-degree wrap. Partial fundoplication can also be performed um, in appropriate selected cases, especially in those patients who have um, poor esophageal peristalsis or, or esophageal motility disorders, then we would consider uh, performing partial fundoplication. Applications. Thank you very much. Um, do you have any concluding comments? Always identify those patients uh, who can present to us with what we call alarm symptoms. Symptoms like severe like dysphagia, which is progressive. Patient symptoms like loss of weight. Symptoms like constitutional sim- uh, constitutional symptoms, uh, lethargy. Um, patients develop with anemia because those will be red flags for a potential malignancy. So those patients need to be thoroughly evaluated and investigated from the time of presentation. Thank you very much, and we look forward to hearing from you in future podcasts. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.today for young, fresh, and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.